0: Chapter 10. Unseen Badges Even in laughter the heart may be sad. Proverbs 14.13 Messages take a while to travel through space, but once they arrive, they can sometimes hurt more than a slap in the face. I can see it now. A young troop who's been waiting for strangely delayed mail for months finally gets, instead of a big care box, a single card in a plain envelope. Still, excited for some correspondence, and now with a hope that more is on the way, he opens his coveted treasure in the presence of his buddies, who are all hoping that it's not what they think it is. I wish that, just as he unseals the flap, a huge hand could erupt from the paper and slap him hard across the face. Yeah, that'd be cool. Harsh, maybe." but not as harsh as a one-paragraph, politely vague explanation for why the valued relationship is now in the past. It would also help the standers-by to recognize the signs and symptoms of a battle buddy who will be in shock for the next mission because of a traumatic brain injury from a giant slapping hand in the mail. Truth in advertising. This letter says I hate you and I hurt you. Yep, mail like that breeds hope. Hope each one I open doesn't have a great big hand in it ready to slap me. I laugh a lot. Most soldiers I know laugh a lot. Dave Reaver, motivational Christian speaker who was horribly wounded serving as a Navy SEAL on an obscure jungle planet, once said, I beat back depression one laugh at a time. I spend a lot of my time as a joiner laughing with soldiers, drinking coffee, talking about extremely insignificant things, often in inappropriate ways, as they decelerate and diffuse from unseen pressures that would crush softer souls. They seem to bear up under the weight with the strange help of the many calluses military life has earned them. But it seems the harder the pressure, the more necessary the laughter. The times I sit and laugh about nothing in an undemanding, non-judgmental manner tends invariably to somehow earn me the right to later sit on sacred ground with those same soldiers and hear stories that wrench all laughter away from me. I've noticed a pattern among the warriors of our time. Broken relationships laughed at hours before are wept over in private conversation. Nightmares that are held at bay only by the body refusing to go to sleep barely contained almost uncontrollable anger at the slightest provocation, usually dealing with mundane issues that were once easily overlooked. Addictions from sleep aids to smoking to drinking to, to a host of others to drowned out reality at all cost. They struggle with every bit of fight within them to avoid becoming zombies inside, living but dead, with each day being nothing but a gray haze of survival young men and women on their third, fourth, even fifth deployments, and yet they serve with pride. These scars that they bear are unseen badges, earned by sacrifice to a planet that loves them, but is filled with people that don't understand them. How does one explain, for instance, that feeling alone while in a crowd is the saddest feeling, but one I wouldn't trade for anything? I wouldn't lose that feeling, because it was purchased by huddling together in instantly overcrowded bunkers with other wide-eyed, ridiculously grinning soldiers while being attacked at two in the morning. The crowd of soldiers that shared my terror were lost to the pages of yesterday's war. And now I find myself lonely in crowds, yet unwilling to have the unseen badge taken away from me at any price. But how do you explain that to those who haven't been there? so we laugh i found myself at camp liberty at a sister cigar club to camp croppers as a host of soldiers i had never met laughed at relationship pains and failed coping mechanisms we shared our unseen badges which each of us could see we could understand them plainly we felt camaraderie from the shared knowledge that we were the only ones who could see them and that was okay I remember on my prior mission, walking to the hospital and checking on staff and patients. One particular week I saw soldiers who had been horribly mangled by IEDs and mortars. Tubes flowed from every artery and opening. And what wasn't tubed was covered in gauze. Room after room, it was the same until I saw an individual on a bed with nothing more than a breathing tube. He had no visible bruises, breaks, or punctures. His eyes were closed in peaceful sleep, and the machine methodically kept rhythm for his breathing. After a few days, I began to see the results of multiple surgeries, and the gauze began coming off, brakes were set and healing, and sleeping soldiers were awake, smiling and laughing with brothers and sisters in arms. I noticed as well that the sleeping man was missing. I assumed he had awakened and gone home, so I asked a nurse about him. She said he had died during the night. I was truly surprised. Out of all the horrific injuries I had seen on the other soldiers, they had all mended. And yet the one who died had seemed fine to me. Out of curiosity, I asked what had happened to him. The nurse said he had been standing too close to the blast area when an IED had detonated. Although he had had no puncture wounds, the concussive blast had liquefied many of his internal organs, and he died from untreatable, unseen internal injuries. I tell that story to show that many of the soldiers I serve with are suffering from unseen internal injuries. Merely being too close as loved ones were killed in combat, too close to friends and family who are ripped away before their time, has left internal injuries as deadly as any caused by bullets or shrapnel. I myself have found that I have strange quirks that I didn't have before. For instance, Whenever I'm in the bathroom, I try never to look into the mirror when I'm washing my hands. After realizing I was literally scared to look in the mirror, I did some personal reflection to discover why. Here's what I discovered. See, I I like spades. I don't play hearts. Poker costs money. But spades, that's a game of strategy and teamwork that I can really relax with. In fact, I relaxed to it every night around 8 p.m. in a little building by the hospital we called McKay Mansion. The normal crew consisted of myself, Mark Bivens, the hospital first sergeant, my battle buddy Captain Darrell Metcalf, our patient administration division officer, Captain John Green, the supply officer, and Lieutenant Colonel Andy Lankowitz, the deputy commander for the hospital. One of us normally sat in the sidelines heckling, waiting for our turn to rotate into the next game while the other four battled it out at the table. Females apparently don't need games to talk. They get together sometimes for the specific purpose of just talking, about their feelings, emotions, and stressors from the day, laughing and supporting each other. It's all very straightforward and all very healthy. That, however, is not how the male species gets things done must be some sort of distractor or another reason for talking. Ours happened to be spades. As cards flew, events of the day were rehashed. As books were made, concerns got aired and dealt with. And if ever things began to get a little too emotional, a well-aimed, well-timed, flatulent outburst kept the appropriate level of testosterone and manliness flowing in the room so that no one felt too girlish about expressing their inner thoughts and feelings. The end result tended to be a healthy, albeit stinky, room of comfort where men were able to openly decompress from stressful days in a hospital in the middle of a war on an alien planet. It was in the middle of this nightly ritual one evening when our game was silenced with a call that there was an anticipated high volume of patients inbound to the hospital. A mass cal event. In a heartbeat, the room turned from laughter to all business card hands that had been greedily guarded from straying eyes of the opponent players were carelessly left unguarded, and the room, still echoing from laughter, lay empty as its former occupants sprinted toward the hospital, steeling themselves for what they were about to see. The news was quickly passed down that there was another bombing in the Talifar cluster, and there were already thirty dead with over a hundred wounded. Since we had only a sixteen-bed hospital— Captain Metcalf, who was in charge of patient movement, got on the phone to tell the incoming birds we could only accept 15 people. I put on a pair of gloves, got cutting scissors, and got in line in the triage area in front of the hospital, waiting for the patients to arrive. I would be assisting in cutting off all clothing so that they could be thoroughly examined simultaneously for weapons and wounds before entering the hospital. The fire department arrived to help as an extra litter bearer, and I was given my assistant, John Green, and a civilian contractor as my cut team, I instructed the other three on the procedures for clearing the patients when they came in. Then we waited. Fifteen minutes out. Five minutes out. Twenty minutes out. Stand down. The patients have been diverted to Stryker instead of us. Adrenaline drained. We returned to McKay to finish a now half-hearted game and called it an early night at the Eleven PM I had just got into a good sleep when the radio by my bed screened me into a conscious state. Attention on the net, Mascal. I say again, Mascal. All personnel report to the hospital immediately. I leapt out of bed, hastily dressed in a PT uniform and bolted out of the door into the darkness. Running by the first sergeant, Captain Green's rooms, I banged on their doors just in case they hadn't heard the radio. They hadn't. Lights came on. Sleepy and slightly annoyed heads poked out at the same time, looking like, You better have something important to say. I summarized. Bascal. Sleep instantly dissolved from their faces as they disappeared back inside their rooms, reappearing seconds later like supermen from their respective phone booths, and the sprint was on once again. Gloves on, scissors ready, scrub top over the PT shirt, teams aligned, five minutes out. 20 critically wounded patients inbound for our 16-bed hospital. New reports saying 175 dead, over 200 wounded. Birds were on the ground. First litter rushed in front of me. I leaned over to begin cutting off combat boots to discover no boots, only two tiny little feet. Not a soldier. A four-year-old little boy with his head completely open to God and everyone else. I let the others cut as I applied a gentle cup with my hands around his head to stabilize it until it could be immobilized. I suddenly realized by the warmth spilling through my fingers that I was the only thing holding his insides inside his head. I went with the stretcher into the ER and maintained the hold until I was relieved by a doctor who said, Say a prayer, chaplain. I did. I whispered a barely audible one. And was startled by multiple voices echoing "Amen" with me. Back outside, a million bodies it seemed were dancing and swirling around each other, cutting clothes, checking vitals, shouting orders—a rhythmic, orderly kind of chaos. There were more children than I could count, broken bodies of parents, elderly women fighting against me as I tried to cut off the last vestiges of their modesty so they could be seen inside. Hurry, chaplain. We gotta get her inside now. I laid aside the scissors and used my hands to rip open her dress. I was left feeling as violated as I'm sure she felt herself. Good job. Go! And she was inside. More were wheeled toward me. The first wave was done. A second was on its way in fifteen minutes. I scanned the scene and saw the civilian contractor sitting on the ground, a thousand-yard stare in his eyes, dried tear streaks on his face. I told myself to remember to talk to him later. The dark, soaked remnants of shredded clothes were strewn everywhere on the ground. I began picking them up and putting them in biohazard bags as others hosed down the stretchers and rickshaws in preparation for the next salvo. Javelin, we need you in here. I ran into the ER and saw every spot filled with people working on the wounded. Litters with casualties lined the hallways of the hospital outside the ER. I saw another little boy being worked on and he was fighting with all his might while the nurse tried in vain to get an IV in. I held down both of his legs with my right arm and held his arms with my left, struggling to keep him still so the nurse could work. The boy was probably five or six years old with a gaping head wound similar to the other child's, but he was yelling something in Arabic. All I could make out was the Arabic word for mommy. I leaned my face towards his ear and softly began singing little baby don't you cry I teared up as he stopped crying and focused on my face and voice keep singing chaplain I heard the nurse say as the IV was successfully started I sung to him until I realized his chest was no longer rising and falling I began to say something but the doctor was way ahead of me intubate he's not breathing and just like that they were breathing for him as they worked on him, I allowed myself to be crowded out of the way so that they could get elbow room to work. They were packaging everyone they could fly out to DeHook, where there was a neurosurgeon. The DSC, Deep Space Chinook, was expected to be on the ground, ready to take almost all of them within one hour. Not a lot of time. I went from bed to bed, praying with patients and staff, and then worked my way back outside to find the contractor. I sat down next to him and offered him a Gatorade and a listening ear how can people do this to children? He asked. I had no answer. I don't think he wanted one. A nurse knelt down beside me, whispering in my ear, Chaplain, we need you inside. One of the little boys with a head injury just died. I rushed inside, wove through the litters of freshly bandaged wounded, and worked my way back to the ICU ward. There was the little boy I'd sung to, but he was still breathing. I know I looked confused at the nurse because she said, not this one, he's doing really well. It's another child. I was led to the back where the first child I'd seen off the bird lay in silent death. I lay my hand on his bandaged head and prayed for his family, the hospital staff, and all who were still fighting for their lives. Then I slowly closed the young boy's eyes. I helped to wash his body and whispered, Good night, little brother, as they sealed him in the black bag and awaited mortuary affairs to come and take him away. The next wave landed to the same blur of action, pain, and heroic efforts on the part of the hospital staff. A third wave came shortly after that to the same effect. And due to the amazing skill and determination of my fellow soldiers, the one little boy was the only life lost in the hospital that night. The rest were successfully loaded onto a DSC and spirited away to their best possible chance of survival in this world. A lot of hugs, handshakes, meaningful looks of admiration and concern from everyone. I stood amidst the noblest of our nation, the heroes of our time, those that history will record with nostalgic awe. And I could not and still cannot begin to express my pride in them. So tired we could barely walk. It was already 5 a.m. I shook the hands of Daryl, Mark, Andy, and John, before we turned to leave and collapsed inside our rooms. I said, Spades tonight? Eight o'clock? They each smiled and said, We'll be there. And they were. We needed the laughter and safety to decompress, and the smelly safe haven that helps heal the healers. I woke up screaming, images of small children singing lullabies with their heads split open, still dancing before my eyes. In my dream, I was covered in blood. I couldn't get it off of my uniform or my hands. Sweating and heart racing, I rolled out of bed, stumbled out of my chew, and headed toward the bathroom. I turned on the sink and splashed water on my face, trying to wake up from the nightmare. Blood mixed into the water, pouring down the drain. I jerked my eyes up to the mirror to see a scared face covered in streaks of blood in a blood-soaked uniform. I jumped back from the mirror in the midst of a panic attack until I collected myself enough to remember that I had gone straight from the chaos in the ER to collapsing on my bed without ever bathing or taking off my uniform. To this day, I hesitate before looking into the mirror, afraid of what I'll see. This is just one of my unseen badges. I have many. Most of my brothers and sisters in arms have more, and I love them. A soldier's life ever forward never back hold the line mustn't crack stitch the wound staunch the flow say goodbye let him go a soldier's life is hard fill the void night and day make the memories go away pretend to be the man you were keep the lie away from her a soldier's life is hard When the day is done, the battle won, and homeward march we all. No enemy could make us flee, but the insane sanity of mundane mediocrity makes even the mighty among us fall. But I'd take the hardened soldier's life, this truth I know too well, over the daily grind of civilian strife. To a soldier a life without war is hell. A soldier's life is hard. These are the wounds that I have earned, I scribble down my lessons learned on a page for all to see. I write in verse and bless my curse, a soldier's life for me. A soldier's life is hard, but it's that hardened life with all its strife that keeps America free. A soldier's life is hard, but it's the only life.